At Abbott, we understand that proper nutrition is foundational for living the best and fullest lives possible. That's why we develop science-based nutrition products for people of all ages. We have 50 trusted nutrition brands that support every stage of life from babies to boomers. These brands include the complete nutrition of Similac, Pediasure, and Ensure, to specialized nutrition like Glucerna for people with diabetes, and vital therapeutic nutrition to support GI intolerance. Whether it's the tiniest of babies or older adults, we work to deliver nutrition products that support health and vitality. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, we will be speaking with SCCM Council Member Beth E. Taylor, R.D., DCN about guidelines for the provision and assessment of nutrition support therapy in the adult critically ill patient. The Society of Critical Care Medicine and the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition published in Critical Care Medicine in 2016. Dr. Taylor is a nutrition support specialist at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. Welcome, Dr. Taylor. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here today. Mm -hmm. Beth, we know that guideline development can really be a long and difficult process with much discussion and much revision. But before we get into those details, can you summarize the important need-to-know aspects of this new guideline? Well, I can. I think some of the important aspects are that these guidelines compared to the 2009 version actually are a little bit more in depth. We definitely had more data behind them because there had been a plethora of randomized control trials in the past 10 years, so we were able to include all that. And we also made the change over to the grade process. Um, So we had a different way of looking at the literature and the strength of the literature. Uh, which is the way I think most guidelines are going now. So I think for our readers, we kind of laid that out for them, and that is going to help, I think, in the end to look at the importance of the recommendations and which ones they need to move forward to try to get into practice at the bedside. Can you give us some background on the development of this guideline? I know it's a revision of the 2009 guidelines, which you mentioned, um, but what's changed and what are the processes for refining the recommendations? Well, we really use a very stringent systematic process as we develop the guidelines with increased transparency. And what I mean by that is every committee member was well aware of everything that was happening on the guidelines. So as we switched over to the grade process, two committee members looked at every randomized control trials and and looked at it for bias. And then all that information went into the database. And we did a lot of uh, conference calls every month and writing, and we'd write, and then we'd review, and then we'd discuss, so that by the end of the process, we were able to get to uh, conformity about our agreement. So we, we had a high level of agreement amongst all the committee members when we had those recommendations specifically that were expert opinion. So it was a long process. We worked really hard, but at the end of it, every member on that committee can stand behind those guidelines. 
Are there tools or helpful guides to our listeners for how they might... This is a very extensive document. It is. How does one go through it, <laughs> pick out the important, important. stuff, and uh, mm-hmm. implement it in your unit? And what are the challenges to implementing guidelines like this? So those are great questions. And one of the things I'll mention is some of the challenges are we added a lot of new sections this time. Um, We might have bitten off a little more than we could chew. We were definitely a group of overachievers. Uh, So we have, for example, new pancreatitis, obesity, sepsis section, and different subsets of surgery. So that was a little challenging as in that we started from scratch for a lot of the new sections. It was more than just an update. And I think that when people go to use these guidelines, because they are so long, one of the things that they can do is go first to the nutrition bundle that we included with the publication that was sort of like our top 10 recommendations that we think everyone should try to get uh, incorporated into practice. And then from there, you're going to have to look at the guideline for the areas that maybe make the most sense for where you practice. So if you're dealing with pancreatitis patients, it would make sense to look at that section of the guidelines. Um, If you tend to have patients that you're a surgical ICU, then you're going to be a little bit more interested in some of the surgical subsets, whereas if you're in the medical ICU, that might not be as pertinent to your patient population. You made reference to there being a lot of new literature with regards to nutrition, and there is still ongoing stuff coming out. How did you deal with, you know, this was not a, a, you know, two-week process. This was a very lengthy process Mm -hmm. to develop these guidelines. How did you deal with new literature that was coming out as you were doing this work in progress? And that is a great question because we had a drop-dead date for our literature included as December 2013. And There are going to be some critics out there that would say, hey, there were some great big nutrition trials, uh, such as like the Harvey Calories trial, that was published after that date. So are these guidelines already out of date? But as we were preparing that manuscript, we didn't work in a vacuum. We were aware that these new trials existed. And even in some of our rationale, we kind of hinted to the fact that these trials existed and looked at especially our recommendations that were more opinion, expert opinion, Mm -hmm. and would have made a change in our recommendation. So the guidelines were written with the knowledge that those studies existed, and we felt that at the end of the day, the recommendations that we have in there are still the same, would be the same, regardless if those new trials were in the database. And we more eloquently did that in a session at Aspen and kind of explained that out during their convention. So we were definitely aware of those new trials. Now, we did not get every single randomized control trial since 2013 because there has to be a day when you say we got to quit looking and we got to start writing. So there is a possibility, right, that the signal of our recommendation could change. In fact, we have big changes this time from 2009 based on data. So... Can you kind of give us a flavor for what your top 10, your bundle includes? What are the key things Things. that came out of this, these guidelines? Absolutely. We still came out with a strong recommendation that we prefer enteral over parenteral. We recognize totally, though, that we do parenteral 
nutrition in a very safe manner now with uh, the increase in glycemic control tools that we have and how we manage the parental nutrition prescriptions these days so that if you need to use parental nutrition, it's not the evil poison that we once (laughs) thought it was in nutrition but that there are certain types of patients that might be more beneficial to start early parental than in others. And so in this guideline, uh, one of the new concepts we brought out was the concept of nutrition risk, and that those patients that are at low nutrition risk in our ICU, it probably doesn't matter if we trophic or if we full feed or if we give them EN or PN, they're going to do about the same. But those patients that are at high risk, which takes into account things like SOFA score and Apache 2 score, so our sickest of our sick patients will probably get the most benefit from the nutrition therapy that we provide. So that was a big component of kind of recognizing nutrition risk. Uh, Also, uh, top 10 was that you need to use protocols. It came down to it again and again that If you have a protocol in place for getting the nutrition started, that is half the battle. Um, Because dietitians, funny, we don't want to work 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And while I'm here, I'm hoping my docs are getting the nutrition started. So again, protocols was a big winner. Also was, and it was new, was we don't need to put as much strength on gastric residual volume as far as tolerance of enteral mm-hmm. nutrition goes. It was a big change when we said don't even maybe check them. Yeah. Now, I think it'll take ICUs, depending on the environment, a while to get to a certain place. Yeah, we haven't been able to <laughs> get the nurses to stop doing that. And, and even in my own ICU, so yeah. think of this. Uh, what we've changed to, though, is we check them every eight hours for 24 hours. And then just check them once a day. Uh-huh. So, and we've upped the amount, the level of what we hold enteral nutrition for. So, by not checking as often, we don't hold as often. And that was a big barrier to enteral feeding. Mm-hmm. So, that was another big one. The other, um, I think, big change was, and kind of part of the bundle, is that we don't recommend glutamine like we did before the Redox mm-hmm. and the MetaPlus mm-hmm. trial. So, A new recommendation is no routine glutamine for our ICU patients. And then lastly was also kind of part of the bundle and the change was uh, enteral lipids and immunonutrition and ARDS and acute lung injury. That had a A A-level recommendation in the old guidelines and goes to a we can't recommend. (laughs) So big change because of the ARDSnet and the OMEGA trial. So that just goes to show that data is important, right? We need these big trials. Yep. Absolutely. You spoke earlier about the importance of having a protocol. Mm-hmm. What are the barriers to putting a protocol in place in your unit? How do you go about developing one, implementing it, and making it a reality? A reality, yes. <laughs> yes. So uh, I can tell you some of my own experience, and I think that can be used in any ICU, is a protocol has to be developed by the team. Um, because in all of our ICUs, we take a team. So when we developed our own, we use a volume-based feeding protocol, which, is, again, was one of our recommendations to overcome uh, lack of enteral feeding. But it was sitting down with nurses and physicians to feel, figure out in our environment what's the best way to make this work, what tools does the bedside nurse need, 
what responsibility should they be able to have to make the call on their own versus, you know, the physician saying just follow the protocol and where does the physician need to intercede when they shouldn't be on the protocol. So I think it's really sitting down with your team, figuring all that out up front and doing a trial run and then figuring out how you can make that automatically happen, whether it's in your electronic health record, if you have an automatic order set Mm -hmm. that the physician admission order set can just click off to follow that protocol and put it into play and how you want that protocol to get started so uh, and most importantly you have to have a champion you have to have a champion for the protocol that's willing to take that call at 2 a.m. by the night nurse and say what am I supposed to do now or to be able to go around and train all the nurses answer all the questions so were you your champion? I certainly was that <laughs> champion. And so, and I can tell you that bringing donuts to training sessions is a good idea. <laughs> Food draws people in and keep it to five minutes and then you can probably get everybody to come. You brought donuts and not carrots? Oh, I know. that. I don't tell all my dietitian colleagues, but if you're talking about the nurses, they're like, don't bring me any rabbit food, Beth. You better have some sugar. I'm like, okay. Uh, you're a dietitian and a nutrition support specialist, and you have clearly carved out a significant role in the development of this guideline and within the society. Do you have thoughts on the benefits of membership within the, this multi-professional organization and how people can get involved in the SCCM? Uh, yes, actually I do. I have to say I joined in 2001, and I was actually encouraged by my physician leaders at the time, who happened to be Dr. Tim Buckman, was the leader of my unit, and I'm so glad he did that. I think that I would say to all the professionals or dietitians, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, uh, non-physician professionals, that you have a home at SCCM. When I started right away on committees, I never felt like my voice didn't matter. And it was really cool that your voice does matter because one of the things that's unique uh, really about SCCM is that it really does try to push that team approach to care. And even our president today recognized his entire team, including nutritionists, I was so proud, um, as being part of that team. And so I think this is a great place to land if you're part of a critical care team. And also I would challenge them that it's good to know what your physicians are learning about nutrition because they're not maybe learning from the journal that the dietitian reads. Mm-hmm. They're learning from critical care medicine. So you need to know what they're learning so you can talk about that intelligently when you're on rounds and do your, your own teaching. That's a really interesting point that mm-hmm. I would not have <laughs> thought of from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Are there any final comments you'd like to make? Just that I really am happy to have had the opportunity that SCCM gave us in the joint venture with the Aspen Group. Uh, I kind of wear both hats at times to develop these guidelines, and I'm very hopeful now that we put a lot of things in databases that the turnaround won't be so long the next time because all those data abstraction forms and all those things are all electronic now, so that was huge for this time around. 
That's great. Well, thank you very much, Beth. Thank you for having me. We have been speaking today with Dr. Beth Taylor from Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri, about the guidelines for the provision and assessment of nutrition support therapy in the adult critically ill patient from the SCCM and from the ASPEN. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. For iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. At Abbott, we understand that proper nutrition is foundational for living the best and fullest lives possible. That's why we develop science-based nutrition products for people of all ages. We have 50 trusted nutrition brands that support every stage of life from babies to boomers. These brands include the complete nutrition of Similac, Pediasure, and Ensure, to specialized nutrition like Glucerna for people with diabetes, and vital therapeutic nutrition to support GI intolerance. Whether it's the tiniest of babies or older adults, we work to deliver nutrition products that support health and vitality. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook Children's Hospital. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.